You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 2nd of December 2022 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, we'll be finding out why Ukraine's military has pulled back from some towns on the front line in the south of the country. Also ahead, we'll have the latest from Spain as the country's security services race to find out who's been sending letter bombs to high-profile targets. We'll also get an update from the Western Balkans as Croatia prepares to become the 20th member of the Eurozone. And a bit later on, Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be telling us about the stories he's been keeping an eye on over the past seven days. We learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. All that and more right here on The Globalist, live from London. Ukraine's government has said that 13,000 members of the country's armed forces have been killed since the start of Russia's invasion in February. It's rare for Kyiv to comment on the number of casualties and the figure has not been confirmed by the country's military. It comes as the US President Joe Biden says he's working with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron to hold Russia accountable for its aggression in Ukraine. Well, for the latest on the war, I'm joined by James Rogers, who's the author of Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. James, many thanks for joining us this morning. And a lot has happened in the last 24 hours. What do you make of those figures that we've had from Ukraine's government? Well, as with all of these things, it's very, very difficult to judge the accuracy of them. I have to say that... uh, my personal assessment uh, as would not be surprising in war times that these figures are probably lower than the reality, those ones that are being put out um, by the Ukrainian officials. If we think back to some of the figures that we've seen from British intelligence, they've put those significantly higher. Um, we've seen figures of 100,000 on both sides in recent weeks. Um, but of course, the truth is, um, reliable data is very difficult to come by. Um, even for those people. Uh, and then the second level is, of course, that the combatants have got, um, you know, the incentive from, from morale and propaganda purposes not to, to make true data public if it doesn't favour their side in the war. Mm. Now, looking at the uh, talks w- between Biden and Macron, how serious is their statement? I mean, we have heard this rhetoric before. We have heard this rhetoric before. I mean, I think the, the important thing is that for the longer term, Ukraine prevailing militarily uh, in this war is going to depend upon Western support. And so if we're seeing these kind of statements, uh, then it is a sign that Western support is likely to continue. Russia's best hope um, uh, of of eventual victory in Ukraine, something which still cannot be ruled out, even if the campaign has clearly not gone uh, as the Kremlin had planned, but Russia's hope will... um, rest upon um, Western support for Ukraine eventually fading away. And and that's why it's very important, I think, from the Ukrainian point of view, for us to try to get a sense of where this war is likely to go from here uh, to see if Western leaders are still stating their support quite as strongly as they are. And how do you feel Russia's dealing with the increasing pressures from Europe and America? 
Again, it is quite difficult to say. Reliable information from Russia is difficult to come by. What, what have we seen in the last few months? We saw um, when the large-scale mobilization was announced in September, we saw you know, between quarter of a million and 700,000 Russian men deciding to leave the country in order to uh, avoid the draft. The Russian economy must be hurting. But I think, again, to look for the longer term, I was at a, a conference yesterday of experts at the Chatham House think tank here in London of focus on the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, and they were united in their view, and this, this is the, the, very much the prevailing view of the experts assembled there, that however this war ends, um, it is significantly going to degrade Russia's standing as a military power, uh, as a political power, as an, as an economic power. This is likely to transform uh, the entire region, which is why so very much rests upon it, because this if Russia doesn't succeed in Ukraine, if it doesn't succeed in re-establishing its influence there, then obviously that's going to alter its relations um, with the wider region and with those countries over which uh, it once ruled as part of the Soviet Union. So there's a huge amount at stake here, there really is. I want to come back to that conference in a moment. Uh, but just for, for now, the Wagner Group, the Biden administration, is considering designating that group as a foreign terrorist organisation. What might that achieve? I think probably very little in, in, in practical terms, but I think in symbolic terms, it's hugely significant. If we think about the word terrorist and the way that's used in international affairs, this is something that, you know, that governments use to designate and to denigrate those organizations which are opposed to them. And it's, very, it's not something that suggests an established state. It's not something, therefore, that suggests it has the right to use violence in any legal sense. So it is really just saying, you know, basically saying they're a group of bandits, and I think that's very much the way in which uh, which Washington wants to portray them. Mm. I, I just want to go into troop pullback a little bit. As we heard in the in the, the top of the story, at the top of the programme, uh, we're seeing Ukraine pulling out troops from the south. We're also seeing Russia pulling troops from towns on the opposite bank of the river from Kherson City. What's the significance of this? I think it's probably, um, you know, the armies are both trying to see where things are going to go in the winter. That you know, the Ukrainian winters are normally pretty hard. Winter is starting now, uh, and I think um, both sides are probably seeing where they can consolidate their positions for now. I think if we're going to see any major changes uh, in the front lines, those are not necessarily likely to come uh, in the next few weeks, simply because of the logistical challenges of that. And um, and again, particularly on the Russian side, things have not gone as they were supposed to, to, to do. If we think about that very high-profile withdrawal from Kherson, that is, was, a, it was a colossal defeat in many ways. It wasn't long after, of course, President Putin had claimed that these uh, regions were going to be Russian forever, and then just weeks later, his armies were withdrawing from them. So not only did they have no civil or political control uh, over those areas, they no longer have any military control either. Mm, because there is a new report out from the Royal United Services Institute about the start of the war, and it says that the odds were overwhelmingly in Russia's favour uh, at the beginning of the invasion. How has it gone so badly for them? Yes, I mean, some of the figures in that are remarkable, and it's interesting reading the beginning of it. It says very clearly, as the underlying source material for much of this cannot yet be made public, this should be understood as testimony rather than academic study. In other words, one assumes that these are uh, captured or, 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 or somehow otherwise obtained uh, secret Russian documents. But yes, to, just to address that particular point, Georgina, 
It said that in the early days of the war, uh, Russia had a troop advantage of 12 to 1 north of Kiev. Um, but then, you know, they couldn't deliver on what they planned to do. And it, they, it says, I'm just going to quote from it briefly, the Russians' plan's greatest deficiency was the lack of reversing courses of action. In other words, there was no flexibility to this plan. So when things didn't go immediately as planned, uh, it was thereafter destined to failure. And of course, you know, the, Russia never, ever expects to be where it is now. Uh, in those days, in the first days of the war, you know, it appeared that Russia's plan was to capture Kiev quickly and replace the government there. Um, and obviously, you know, that indeed, if these documents to be trusted or this, this Russi support, whatever sources it report, whatever sources it draws upon, that indeed was the case. And so ever since, Russia has been trying uh, to reinvent its plan and to refocus its attack and, and has so far not succeeded in its main aim, which is capturing the territory it's intended to capture. Mm. Let's go back to this conference about the war that you attended. What then was the focus and and the major takeaways? Well, the the, the focus really was um, just to to assess um, where the situation now after after nine months of war um, and also, um, you know, to look at what the future would be. And as I said, the, the experts there were united in the fact that there was, there was going in the longer term um, to degrade Russia's capability and its, its standing as a military power in the region. But it was also very clear um, that uh, Ukraine surviving and Ukraine eventually prevailing relies very heavily upon Western support. And I note that that Rusi um, report we've just been discussing also said that, you know, by the summer, Ukraine had pretty much uh, run out of its ammunition supply. So it was only resupply and new weapons from the West that persisted. And, um, and for the longer term, as I say, um, you know, this, this, this war is going to transform not just the fortunes of Russia and Ukraine, uh, but the wider region. And, of course, as we've seen from the effects that it's had, particularly on food prices, that, uh, you know, many, many, many parts of the world, so there's a huge amount of state. And, and is there any possibility then of, or is it to be advised, that Putin is given some kind of off-ramp? It's very difficult to see what form that could take at this stage, I think. I mean, we may, we'll see how the, the war itself goes in the next few months. As we've been saying, you know, the winter is coming. Uh, it's not the main time for, for military campaigning. It, it is very difficult to see what the West could offer Putin now um, that, that would work, because it would have to involve... Putin is going to have to be able to, to claim victory in some form or other, and that presumably is going to have to come from his judgment because it's very difficult to see at this stage. I mean, let's set aside the state of Crimea, which, of course, Russia annexed in 2014. Um, but it's very difficult to see at this stage what kind of settlement, short of recapturing all of its um, territory, would satisfy Ukraine and therefore... Uh, you know, what, where, what the, the broader outline of the deal could be. Mm. Now, yesterday, there were reports of increased activity around airfields in Russia, and there was a security alert issued across the whole of Ukraine. Uh, that was then dropped later in the day, uh, amid reports that there was to be imminent action. Uh, what more do we know about that? Well, not, not much. I mean, I, I think that's really, um, you know, it's a sign that, both sides are nervous that these security alerts come. You'll remember that, you know, in the last few weeks after, you know, 
months of comparative calm in Kiev and western parts of Ukraine. There were um, missile strikes there. So I think both sides are, are, are concerned about the way, you know, what their enemy is going to do in terms of expanding and prolonging this war. And, and I don't think it's surprising that we get reports like this, which then turn out not, at least in the short term, uh, to have much substance to them. Uh, And finally, James, it's officially winter now in Ukraine, and we know that much of the power infrastructure has been destroyed. Is this the thing that might finally force something more concrete to happen in terms of an agreement just being frozen out, Russia weaponising winter? I think Russia is going to try that, but I think you know military history suggests to us that you know civilian populations who are stuff who exposed to suffering of, of bombardment or of deprivation that are not necessarily uh, you know it can tend to strengthen their resolve. There is no question that you know conditions in Ukraine must be incredibly difficult at the moment. One would have thought that you know Russia only didn't resort to this earlier because they intended and hoped to to capture cities, you know, largely unscathed, and of course absolutely the opposite has happened. So now realising that they're not going to be able to, to just to take over, uh, then Russia is, is resorting to this. Um, again, not particularly surprising, and, and, and unfortunately uh, a facet of modern warfare where civilian populations are very much made to suffer. James, thank you very much indeed. That's James Rogers there, and this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Just after 13 minutes past eight in Barcelona, 13 minutes past seven here in London, the United States Embassy in Madrid received a suspicious package yesterday and five letter bombs have been sent to various targets in the country, including one to the Ukrainian embassy that ignited, injuring an employee. Other explosive devices concealed in postal packages were sent to Spain's Defence Ministry, a European Union satellite centre and an arms factory that makes grenades for Ukraine. Well, I'm joined now by Stephen Bergen, who's a writer and journalist for The Guardian and The Observer, based in Spain, and he joins me now from Barcelona. Good morning to you, Stephen. Uh, These packages were delivered across a two-day period, but we're now also hearing reports that the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's office also received a letter containing an explosive device on November the 24th. Is this thought to be connected? Um, At at the moment, uh, no connection has been made except with the ones that were all delivered in the past couple of days, the six that that you mentioned. Um, uh, It's not, there there has been no statement yet whether there's a connection with the the earlier package. All of the six um, were delivered by ordinary post, um, all in similar envelopes, all in the same handwriting. And one of them, that had not been, uh, well, obviously, as you said, one exploded um, when an employee at the Ukrainian embassy opened it. But the others have all, bar one, been destroyed by controlled explosions. But the one that that hasn't is the key to what's going on and and, uh, to the key to finding out who has actually sent these. Obviously, it's an individual, um, and obviously it has some connection with the uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, given the the, the targets are all associated with um, either the government, Ukraine or military uh, people. And do we know exactly what the envelopes contain? What kind of explosive material? Yeah, well, it seems that um, the explosive is 
thought to have come from fireworks. Uh, so somebody's been emptying out fireworks. And uh, there's one report that they that they also contained small metal balls, which would, if exploded, would act as shrapnel. Um, they're, they're, they're pretty amateurish, uh, which doesn't mean they couldn't cause harm. Uh, fortunately, the one person who did open it um, suffered only very minor injuries. Um, and I think, you know, that's all, all we know. I think that they, they, they will probably track down who wrote them, uh, who sent them, uh, either through handwriting or, or the forensics on, on the one that remains intact. Can you give us more detail about the recipients? Um, well, the recipients were, you know, the Ukrainian embassy, um, the Spanish president, Pedro Sanchez, his uh, defense minister, Margarita Robles, and then uh, there were two others, oh, and the U.S. Embassy. And then one was sent to uh, an, ar- an armaments company, and the other, as you mentioned, to this uh, the EU satellite base at, at, at um, Torrejón de Ardoz. And that's the one that is intact and the one that they're examining. And did the packages come from within Spain? Yes, that, that, that's definitely. Uh, they've all been sent within Spain, and as I said, by by ordinary post. Mm. Has anyone claimed responsibility? No, nobody said anything. Uh, it, I mean, it, it given given the scale of of. I mean, they're, they're such small packages that I think somebody's trying to make a, a statement, a sort of a, a provocation, um, rather than any real intent to to injure or kill. Mm. Has there been any comment, official comment, from Russia? Uh, No, not at all. There's been official comment from Ukraine telling embassies to tighten up security. Um, And on that that note, the the Spanish government has not raised the terrorism alert level, uh, suggesting that they're not taking this, you know, as a major threat. Mm. I wonder how security is being stepped up, though. Well, I think it's it, uh, the embassies and 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 possible government targets. Um, there's there's people just a high level of uh, of, of of alert and um, and just the usual tightening up on security checks, ID, um, and obviously the any mail arriving at any of these destinations will be even more carefully screened. Mm. And Stephen, how has this been covered there? I, I wonder if it's affecting Spaniards' support for Kiev, for the war. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's, judging by this morning's papers, it's, it's dropped down the news agenda. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it would have any impact on people's uh, overall support for the Ukrainian cause. And, it's, and the government has made a statement that uh, Margarita Robles, who was one of the targets, says this will this will not in any way have an impact on Spain's uh, support of, of Ukraine. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. That was Stephen Bergen in Barcelona. Still to come, we'll head to Switzerland to review the day's papers, get the latest film news with Karen Krasanovich, and then Monocle 24's Andrew Muller will be telling us about the stories he's been keeping an eye on. We learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. 
Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic? We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic. Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad. Or wondering whether shops will still matter. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced, intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world. That's the Chiefs right here on Monocle 24 or wherever you find finer podcasts. This week, the Islamic State group announced that its leader has been killed without giving any detail. US sources corroborated this, adding that Abu Hassan al-Hashimi al-Qurashi died in October in an operation by the Free Syrian Army in Deraa province. Local fighters said al-Qurashi had blown himself up after he and his aides were surrounded in the town of Jassim. Well, Dr Shiraz Maher is a senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London and director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation. Uh, he joins me now on the line. Shiraz, there's a lot of hearsay surrounding this. Do we actually know what and when it happened? Well, it looks like this happened about two weeks ago, um, and that's been sort of confirmed now by the United States. It is quite unusual for the US to have not announced it nearer to the time. Normally, there is a sense of getting this information out quickly and early. Um, and that suggests perhaps one of two things, um, either that they didn't know about it or um, that they had some oversight of it but weren't able to confirm it at the time. That's now been confirmed by the group itself. Right. So, I mean, would this be more of a, a an instance of local fighters getting lucky or US intelligence? I think that's the really interesting question here. We just don't know enough about this operation. I think what's really significant to point out uh, to listeners is that this is the third leader of uh, the Islamic State group that's been killed in as many years. Um, but the first two were uh, found up in northwestern Syria. That's a part of the country that remains beyond the control of the Assad regime. It's still in opposition hands. Um, and that's kind of where you'd expect ISIS guys to try and be sort of melting into the background in this relatively more lawless, rebel-held area. Dara province, which is in the south, it's not in the north, um, it's in the south, it's near the Jordanian border, it's back in Assad regime hands. These are regime-held areas, and although the Free Syrian Army conducted this, op this operation, it's operating there with a degree of autonomy, this is the last place we expected to find him. 
It also means the United States would struggle to operate there in the way that it does in northwestern Syria when it's gone in in the past to get the other leaders of ISIS. So very, very unusual then that he should be there, but we don't know why. Precisely. But I think it's emblematic of the fact that ISIS is, of course, uh, very much on the back foot. It has been now for about four years since the loss of its territorial holdings in the eastern parts of the country, of course, most notably in Raqqa and then through to Mosul in Iraq. Um, and this is very much now the new model of operation for the group where it's essentially seeking to melt back into the background and to operate more as an insurgency than a proto-state. Mm. I mean, does it have a, a leadership problem? It does to an extent. I mean, we know, and a lot of uh, the academic literature shows that these so-called decapitation strikes, the taking out of terrorist leaders, not just with regards to ISIS, but generally terrorist groups writ large, does affect the movement. Um, although jihadist groups tend not to be overly um, uh, sort of sentimental about their leaders, and they tend to replace them quite quickly, the loss of leadership nonetheless does serve to have a loss of institutional memory. And with that, of course, when these leaders tend to go, there's also a big intelligence harvesting. It's not just the fact that these leaders tend to be killed, but particularly when the United States has done similar operations, they will then seize, you know, associated electronics, laptops, computers, those kinds of things to, to get a much better insight into what's actually happening within those organisations. And in this particular instance, how significant is the death of al-Qarashi? Out of the last three leaders, he's been the least well-known. And again, that is really um, emblematic of the fact now that uh, ISIS is on the back foot. We all remember, of course, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, when the group had its large holdings. He appeared, of course, most brazenly at the Nuri Mosque in Mosul uh, in public at Friday congregational prayers to announce his caliphate. So in that sense... We're seeing this move back towards having slightly more anonymous leaders, slightly more, uh, uh, I suppose, opaque characters about whom less is known. Again, I think that's a, a marker of the fact that this is a group at the moment, at least, that's well, well away from the high watermark it enjoyed several years ago. And just looking at its affiliations, not just in the region, but further afield, in terms of Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda, uh, how how firm are those connections? Well, it doesn't have formal connections. In, in fact, it has competition with those groups. It's in competition with the Taliban, with Al-Qaeda, and these other types of groups. In fact, if you look across the world in that regard, um, and, and sort of do an audit, I suppose, of two decades of the war on terror. What you actually find with regards to the jihadist threat is that this is now uh, a threat landscape that has become far more diverse, far more diffuse, and far more splintered. So, in fact, uh, um, the problem has proliferated in that regard, not gone away. Mm. Now, we know that four to 5,000 non-Syrian fighters are detained in northeast Syria and tens of thousands of their family members are in crowded, displaced persons camps. What sort of threat do these huge numbers pose for the region and the broader global community? To my mind, this is the single greatest security threat uh, facing all of us today. And um, attention has moved away, of course, very quickly, partly with the pandemic, partly because of Ukraine. There's a sense that the war in Syria, in inverted commas, is over or that the ISIS threat is over. That's very much not the case. I think the way to focus people's minds uh, on this issue is if you consider Guantanamo Bay, that was a community of 700 people that the United States originally detained. 
20 years on, you've still got 40 people there, roughly, who the U.S. cannot repatriate, and they simply can't uh, um, uh, uh, move them. The community of ISIS detainees, that's ISIS members or affiliated people who are family members or even worse, children who are um, in detention, is roughly just under 70,000. So just consider that in terms of uh, scale magnitude. The conditions are, of course, uh, incredibly desperate. And you only need to consider that roughly out of that community, about twenty uh, to 25,000 are children. And we're predominantly talking children under the age of 12. What will happen to these children as they grow up? What future uh, is there for them uh, in that regard? So um, this is a, a very, very important and pressing uh, national and international security issue, which we need to be uh, focusing our efforts on in terms of looking at how we can I suppose, release the pressure that is building up in these centres of detention in northeastern Syria. Dr Shiraz Maher of King's College London, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24 and here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The United States and its Asian allies have imposed sanctions on three senior North Korean officials. This follows Pyongyang's decision to launch a record number of ballistic missiles. The hermit nation has also tested several intercontinental ballistic missiles. South Africa's opposition Democratic Alliance Party is calling for an early election as President Cyril Ramaphosa grapples with a corruption scandal. Ramaphosa has been accused of covering up a multi-million dollar theft from his farm in 2020. And Japan have beaten Spain to progress to the knockout stages of the World Cup in Qatar. It means that Germany have failed to reach the last 16 for the second successive tournament. Japan will now play Croatia in the second round of the competition. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In less than a month, the Eurozone will accept its newest member. Croatia is all set to give up its existing currency, the kuna, and earlier this week its government set its first budget denominated in euros. But are all Croatians universally happy? Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, can tell us more. Guy, thanks so much for, for joining us. How big a deal is this for Croatia? Well, it's certainly a significant moment because uh, Croatia was the, the last country to join the European Union. It, uh, it completed its accession in 2013, in July of 2013. And of course, it's taken until now to get to the point where it's passed all of these economic tests which you have to pass to join the euro. Now, you have to point out here that the Croatia was actually committed to adopting the euro as one of its conditions for joining the EU. So it's not like it's a sort of special major decision that, that had to be made. It, in essence, made that decision when it joined the EU nine and a half years ago. Uh, but the other countries in the eurozone wouldn't want to admit a country which they felt would destabilise the euro. OK, Croatia's only got four million people in it. But nonetheless, we've seen from the sort of shenanigans we've had in the European economy over the past 15 years uh, that you really want to be careful about introducing any instability into the system. And I mean, what's extraordinary is that they have done this ahead of other countries which joined the EU earlier. 
They have indeed. So this is notably the 2004 intake, which is very much in the neighbourhood, Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland. I mean, you're still spending forints, for example, if you go to Hungary, crowns in the Czech Republic, Zlotys in Poland, and also Romania and Bulgaria joined in 2007. They still haven't joined. Bulgaria wants to. It's very much in the waiting room. Um, but, you know, a lot of those other countries have really been dragging their feet. Now, I think Hungary is a big case in point here. When it joined the European Union in 24, it set a target to start using the euro from 2007 or 2008. It's uh, it's a long time since then now. And that was despite the fact that its own forecasts suggested that joining the euro would boost investment by 30%. But, you know, those countries, they've got their reasons for not wanting to join the euro. And it's fairly obvious what they are. And it's monetary policy. If you join the European Union, you surrender your rights to set interest rates, for example. And a lot of those countries want that flexibility. They value that flexibility over any potential advantage they might get from from being in the euro. Mm. So have there been qualms in Croatia about the introduction of the euro there? Yes, they have. And, and it's, it's a mixture of reasons for those qualms. I mean, you, you alluded in the introduction, Georgina, to the fact that not everyone's happy. Well, you're quite correct about that. So the opposition parties tried to force a referendum on the issue earlier this year. They had a big campaign and they gathered hundreds of thousands of signatures. Quite what they were telling the people who were signing is another matter. But they did gather, I think it was 350,000-odd signatures they needed to to force a referendum. And they thought, well, hey, we've done it. And then the Constitutional Court turned around and said, well, actually, no, uh, this isn't constitutional. You can't just have a referendum on this, not least because... Croatia had a referendum to join the European Union and it made it explicitly clear that that the, the adopting the euro was part of the deal. Any new members from, from here on in, in fact, have to commit to adopting the euro as their currency. So Croatia had already had that referendum, was the argument. Uh, but the, the arguments against joining the euro, some of them are nationalistic. The campaign was talking about Arcuna for example, so in very nationalistic terms, be proud of our currency. Uh, but others are, you know, fear, frankly, people thinking, well, we're switching currencies, there'll be price gouging. Inevitably, things will be rounded up, not rounded down. And uh, perhaps people will be taken advantage of. People will you know, take advantage to hike prices in euros without people really realising uh, what they should be. Mm. I mean, presumably, there will be advantages too. Well, the obvious one I can think of actually comes for visitors to Croatia. Now, this is a country which makes um, more than a fifth of its GDP from tourism. And when you drive into Croatia, most people, most tourists uh, coming into Croatia do drive in from countries like Germany, Czech Republic, Austria. And when you drive in, you see these exchange booths where you, you, have, you exchange your euro for kuna. Well, they're going. I mean, there's going to be no role for them anymore. And people are no longer going to have to do all these calculations in their heads about you know, how many uh, kuna equals a euro and so on and so forth. And that's led to uh, some hilarity. I, I did do a story in a roundup earlier this year, Georgina, for, for, for Monocle 24, uh, when there was the, the, I think it must have been Europe's most expensive pizza slice. And uh, there was this enterprising or villainous uh, bakery on one of the islands in Croatia, which was charging untold amounts of money for, for a slice of, uh, of, of pizza for people just you know straight off the boats in the marina, who obviously wouldn't have got their calculations right and ended up paying you know 600 euros for a slice of pizza or something <laughs> guy thank you very much indeed that was our balkans correspondent guy delorne uh you're listening to the globalist on monocle 24 
The Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs is a smart guide to starting and running your own business from the people behind Monocle Magazine. It's a handbook designed to encourage, inspire, and perhaps even gently prod its readers into taking the plunge and starting something for themselves. Inside, you'll find canny case studies of 100 businesses that succeeded, ideas on where to base your business, and advice from more than 50 industry experts on everything from finding funding to scaling up. There are ideas and opportunities for everyone from a first-timer with a dream to seasoned entrepreneurs mulling over their next venture. This isn't about getting rich quick, but it is for those interested in building something with integrity, making something that lasts, something you'd be proud to pass on to the next generation. Isn't it time you turn the page? Let's get started then. The Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs. Go to monocle.com forward slash shop and order your copy today. It's 8.36 in Lucerne, 7.36 here in London, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Martin Goodman is a senior lecturer at the Lucerne School of Business in Switzerland and joins me now. Martin, good morning to you. We're going to start off uh, with Sweden's main daily newspaper, which is talking about how the Social Democrats are looking strong. Tell us more. Yes, good morning, Georgina. I think we need a little bit of context for this story. Uh, Sweden, of course, is rarely in the news uh, outside of Scandinavia. And that's changed a little bit in the last year. We had Sweden's application to join NATO in May. That caused um, quite a bit of news around the world, obviously, because it's directly linked to the war in Ukraine. And then we had the big newsworthy item in September when Sweden held its general elections. And uh, Sweden, you, you referenced the Social Democratic Party. This has been the dominant political force in Sweden since the 1930s. They've really built the Swedish uh, liberal social welfare state that most of us associate with Sweden. Now, in these elections in September, the Sweden Democrats, a um, very right-wing anti-immigrant nationalistic party emerged as the second largest party with 20% of the votes. And that was quite shocking uh, in and of itself. What made it more shocking, of course, and um, made it such a newsworthy item uh, around the world is that they were able to not formally join government, but the current government, um, which had been the opposition bloc for a long time, composed of the moderates, the Christian Democrats, and the liberals, made a deal with the Sweden Democrats and are now ruling with their support. Mm. And yeah, go ahead. I was just wondering, so if an election was held today, it would go back to the previous government? That's exactly right. And this is why this story uh, is so interesting, that polls were conducted uh, just this week. And it showed that the uh, social democratic bloc would in fact be voted in if elections were held today with 52% of the votes. And support for the current uh, ruling coalition has fallen to 46%. Now, what we don't know, of course, is exactly um, what lies behind these numbers. If this is a post-Brexit moment, if you will, where voters have a certain amount of regret 
uh, or um, if this is just an um, you know a poly blip, which we have had plenty of uh, in the last few years as well. I mean, how does that fit then within the overall picture of the rise and possible fall of right wing movements across Europe and indeed the world? That's a good question. I mean, a lot has uh, happened on that front this year alone. I think the midterm elections in the U.S. Uh, many of us could breathe a, a sigh of relief, if you will. Then again, we have the Sweden Democrats in Sweden, which um, had such, um, uh, you know, from their perspective, an outstanding election result in Italy as well. We have, uh, you know, a, a far right government in office. So I think we have to wait uh, and see. Noticeable to me in these poll numbers that were released is that support for the Sweden Democrats um, only fell from 20%, which is what they achieved during the election, to 18% um, in this poll conducted this week. So they still garner quite a bit of support among the Swedish uh, population. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's move on to sport now. And there is a Netherlands coach, uh, Louis van Gaal, I think his name is. Uh, Tell us more about this story. I'm not sure what sport we're even discussing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I figured we had to include one story from uh, the World Cup, which uh, is a bit difficult for me because I'm not a passionate football watcher at the the best of times. Okay. Yes, it's football. And, uh, you know, certainly this year with the various uh, shenanigans of FIFA and the host nation, I've been less inspired to follow it than, than usual. But this story did catch my eye. It's from The Athletic, which is a part of the New York Times portfolio. And it profiles uh, Louis van Gaal, as you said, the head coach of the Dutch team, and he is Dutch himself. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a long and very successful career as a football coach. He's been at many of the top clubs, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester, and of course, also with the men's national team in Holland. And he is very difficult to nail down as this story does a fabulous job of profiling because he is the kind of coach who is either vociferously loved or absolutely hated by everybody who has had anything to do with him. And, I mean, and those leadership styles are vitally important when it comes to what happens on the field, I'm told. They, they, they are indeed. But I think the interesting thing about a coach, of course, is that their work takes place behind the scenes. You know, the players we see on the pitch, um, but what he does and how he uh, trains his team is something that we only get glimpses of. And so it's very difficult from the outside to really know who is the real Van Gaal. Uh, and that's what this story discusses, that we don't really know. They do write um, quite humorously that the only thing everybody seems to agree on who discusses him is the size of his ego. <laughs> there is, uh, they quote uh, an introductory speech that was given in front of Van Gaal by the Ajax, this is a big club in the Netherlands, uh, chairman, when Van Gaal was appointed as their head coach in the 90s. And this chairman introduced him by saying, uh, Louis is damned arrogant, and we like arrogant people here. Let's have a quick look at this Hawaiian volcano. Uh, This is a story in The Guardian. Apparently people are flocking there for selfies. Indeed. This is another story that caught my eye. Um, So the Mauna Loa volcano uh, on the big island of Hawaii has been dormant for nearly four decades. It just erupted again on Wednesday. 
uh, and is now spewing out a, a beautiful stream of lava towards the road that connects to local communities there on the big island. And the article cites uh, the concern of a lot of local officials that if the road is cut off by lava, then uh, you know residents who rely on this road will have to take a detour of several hours along a coastal road instead. Hmm. And the irony here is that the road is already almost impassable because of these thousands of selfie takers who are flocking there. Quite extraordinary. Now, I want you to read this headline in both um, German and English to us, this last headline, please. Sure. So this is from the NZZ, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung in Zurich. Kuhverbot in Zürich wegen Netto Null nimmt die Stadt das furzende Vieh, Vieh ins Vizier. So I would loosely translate that as a cow ban in Zurich, question mark. Because of net zero, the city is targeting the farting bovines. And is there an excess of farting from the bovines? <laughs> well, apparently, uh, as far as... Uh, agriculture goes, dairy farming and particularly uh, cows contribute uh, quite a bit to emissions, uh, specifically in terms of, uh, of methane. So yes, apparently there is an excessive amount of farming. I think this is interesting too, because Zurich uh, often calls itself downtown Switzerland. You know, it is really the only truly urban area of the country, but there are in fact still Uh, dairy farmers within the city limits, and uh, they have now become the target of local legislation. Huh. Well, I'll be in Zurich this evening, and I'll be sure to look out for those farting cows. Martin, thank you very much indeed. That was Martin Gutmann, senior lecturer at the Lucerne School of Business in Switzerland. And this is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. We're going to get a roundup of film news now with our regular Monocle 24 contributor, Karen Krasanovich. Thanks as ever for joining us, Karen. Sight and Sound's greatest films of all time. What's on That's this list? Right. Yeah, well, every 10 years, Sight and Sound magazine since 1952 has asked a handful of, of experts, critics and, and other people to list the top 10 films that they think for, for the coming decade. Uh, this year, I was included, which is nice. They've, they've doubled it to almost 1,700 people, so we can fold it in there. Um, and this year, it's the, the topper of the, of the entire list, quite prestigious, is Chantal Ackerman, uh, her Jeanne Dielman film from 1975. Uh, she's Belgian filmmaker. She made it when she was 25. Has beaten Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, uh, Ozu, Wong Kar Stanley Kubrick, And on seven is Claire Denis. So we do have another woman in there as well. So in terms of, of choosing the films, that, that there's no time limit then. It's not just the, the list comes out every 10 years, but the film can be from, from any era. Yeah, there can be. You can, you can choose silent movies if you like as well. Uh, you can, it, it's the, the thing about what the greatest is, I mean, this of course is, is extremely subjective. And it's, I, I have a tendency to think about What's my favorite and what would I tell people that I would think they would enjoy seeing? Um, I, I think 
what was expected here because a lot of film critics have died or retired and there's a there's a new generation coming up with a different view about films and so this was actually mooted to be uh as uh, jason wood the the bfi executive director of public programming said it's a compelling list, but also it shakes a fist at the established order. And this was pretty much expected. Mm. So what are the general themes in terms of the changes that you've seen since the last list? Oh, gosh, there's just so many to say. I mean, in 2012, there was only one black film uh, and now there are seven. Uh, and, and other films have been pushed on. I mean, two silent films have made the top two. Uh, and films that have been knocked out have been Storheim's Greed, uh, Griffith's Intolerance, uh, Ancien Andalou by Bunuel, which has always been one of the things, Magnificent Ambersons, um, and it's it just many, many, many films have been, have been pushed out, which is quite shocking. Mm. Now, as you say, you were actually one of the voters on this, so what are your, uh, say, top three? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me. Well, to, to, with, without going into the big list, uh, I have to say that my list is more like the director's list. I mean, I did put 2001 in Space Odyssey first because every it's just a, I love watching it. And I think that most people would enjoy watching it, big screen or small. So I think that's, that's the kind of argument. I put in some, some new films from 2022, Nope and Triangle of Sadness. So it's, it is quite interesting. And just as an addenda, I just wanted to say that uh, the, the new editor of Sight and Sound, Mike Williams, is going to be on the stack this week. So it's going to be very interesting to hear what they're doing with the magazine and how they're shaking, shaping it up for a new generation of film lovers. Absolutely. How do lists like this matter? Do they influence the viewing public, do you think? Um, sight and Sound is a bit niche, I have to say, and I think that the editor's probably trying to make it more popular, something like Total Film, which so many people read, or Empire. Um, it's influential insofar as it's recognizing a, a, a lack of diversity, I suppose, and recognizing that there are great filmmakers that we don't even know about or aren't seen as much of. Uh, and I have to say, Adam Roberts, with his Ano Amour, my French is so bad, uh, he, has been, he has been heralding Chantal Ackerman for a long, long time. She's now passed away, but he is very influential in getting this film to the top. Mm. Uh, Karen, I want to look at the unlikely named... <laughs> cocaine bear. As I understand it, it's about a bear that takes cocaine. Indeed. Well, he didn't mean to. It's kind (laughs) of an accident. Um, This is based on a true story. This is directed by by Elizabeth Banks, um, who's been picking out some really great, great material. Uh, It's it's based on a real-life story of a 175-pound black bear who ingested a duffel bag of abandoned cocaine in northern Georgia in 1985. Now, that sounds like a great, so allowed the poor bear it died a terrible death. But in Elizabeth Banks' uh, fictional version, he goes on a killing spree. Uh, it is not a real bear. You will see that it really is not a real bear. This is Ray Liotta's last film. Uh, and we also have Scott Seiss, who was a TikTok phenomenon over lockdown, a uh, really, really funny comedian. It's great to see him performing in this. But it's the trailer that really caught everybody's attention uh, on social media. I think it's just what people need. They need something ridiculous, a little bit forbidden, and just silly. And if you see the trailer, you, even if you sort of hate yourself, it's quite, it's quite funny. And uh, this, is, this is set, again, in Georgia's Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest. And when they found the bear in real life, 
There was nothing left but bones and a big hide, said the investigator. Oh, dear. Right. Cocaine bear. That's one to uh, certainly mark in some way. (laughs) Karen, thank you very much indeed. That was the film critic Karen Krasanovich. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally on today's programme, we join Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for his take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that whatever other reservations one may reasonably entertain about the 2022 World Cup, it absolutely was not going to let us down on the flag mishap. The flag mishap is a highlight of any World Cup or indeed any international sporting tournament. It occurs when someone somewhere runs up the wrong competitor's flag at a significant moment, occasioning indignant communiques, summonings of ambassadors, furious headlines and other such hilarity. Classics of the genre include South Korea's flag instead of North Korea's before a women's football match at the 2012 Olympics in London. Uh Niger's flag instead of Nigeria's at the opening ceremony of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. (sighs) Australia's and New Zealand's the wrong way around at the medal ceremony for the women's canoe slalom at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Oh no. And one for the real flag mishap heads. A Chinese flag with the stars slightly off kilter. Also at the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Actually, we learn, reflecting on the above, that Brazil seems prone to particular lackadaisy on this front. Get it together, Brazil. Anyway, we learned that the contribution of Qatar 2022 to this canon of gaiety would be associated with the crucial Group B game involving the United States and Iran, two countries which one might say have something of a history if one was swinging for some sort of award for understatement. We learned that in social media postings foreshadowing the match between the Great Satan and the Axis of Evil, whoever handles these things for the United States Soccer Federation had used images of Iran's flag without the stylized tulip motif added after the 1979 revolution, which unloaded the Shah and established the Islamic Republic. We learned of the depth of the Ayatollah's unamusement from the following statement by Iran's state news agency, as will be read with due solemnity by Monocle 24's clerical dudgeon desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In an unprofessional act, the Instagram page of the US Football Federation removed the symbol from the Iranian flag. The Iran Football Federation sent an email to FIFA to demand it issue a serious warning. Not just any old warning. A serious warning. (laughs) 
We learned by way of explanation from the US soccer authorities that they'd plucked the logo from the flag as an arguably somewhat chaotic gesture of support for those Iranian women still protesting in large numbers at considerable risk for the right to decide for themselves whether or not they feel like wearing a scarf. But we learned that they had not first informed the United States actual manager Greg Berhalter, who rather disappointingly for those of us who enjoy this sort of thing and were looking forward to Iran retaliating by taking the stars or the stripes off the stars and stripes or whatever, apologized. Sort of. We had no idea about what U.S. soccer put out. The staff, the players had no idea. We learned, however, that this saga had not ceased delighting us because after this... McKenney saw the run of Dest and there he is and Pulisic's in there! The United States make their move in Group B. There was this. Which, we learned, was just one of a plethora of online clips claiming to record Iranians in Iran celebrating the defeat of Iran's football team by the United Actual States, an occurrence which defies simile, being by any measure weirder than Barcelona fans rejoicing in a belting by Real Madrid, Celtic fans enraptured at a loss of the old firm derby at home to Rangers, or indeed North Korea being absolutely delighted at seeing South Korea's flag hoisted on their pole. Do you see how meticulously stitched together these monologues are? Yeah. Or perhaps we should say how meticulously stitched together these monologues usually are, as we've had our best people on it all morning and cannot find a seamless segue from football flags, protests, etc. to French bread. So probably what we're going to need here is that agonising gear change sound effect fading into that silly French accordion music we seem to end up using fairly frequently. For we learned that UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list had once again ridden to the rescue of whimsical news monologues struggling for a punchline. We learned that alongside such worthy endeavours as, and these are actual examples, Belgian horseback shrimp fishing, Belarusian tree-born beekeeping, Spanish human castle building, Vanuatu and sand drawing, Bosnian lawn mowing, Mongolian camel coaxing et al, UNESCO has now ennobled the French baguette. that President Emmanuel Macron was among those French delighted by this recognition of their unwieldy long loafs, brandishing one gloatingly during his current visit to Washington. Dans ces quelques centimètres de savoir-faire passé de main en main, il y a, il y a exactement l'esprit du savoir-faire français. And we learned that President Macron was not done there, as he tweeted exultantly as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's Gallic Vindication Desk Chief, Laura Kramer, whose Romanian accent is the closest thing we have in the building today. Get past it. We had been fighting for years with bakers and the world of gastronomy for its recognition. The baguette is now UNESCO Intangible Heritage. <coughs> so we learned that for France, this brings an end to decades of pain. Pain being French for bread, right? 
Please yourselves. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks also to our producers, Rhys James, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you all morning, playing you some great tunes, including some Christmas music. And then I'll be back for The Briefing, which is live at midday from London. And The Globalist will return at the same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>